The Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter, Volume 11, Issue Number 22, where we are going to discuss genetically modified foods. For the disclaimer, the information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. Before we get to the information at hand, I want to discuss a new project in the works, a podcast. My good friend Paul Smolin, aka Doc Smo, author and podcaster for Practical Portable Pediatrics, is hanging it up after 11 years and more. He graciously is handing me the reins and staying in the game enough to keep me from going down the wrong path. Lord knows that I will need the guidance. I'm hoping to keep him engaged with me on this journey for a long time, as his brilliance will always be welcome and very necessary. Over the next six months, I'm going to try my hand at podcasting and audio recording some of these newsletters in different various forms for you, the autophile crowd. The thought process will be that I will interview leaders in respective fields of pediatric and preventative medicine as a baseline thorough understanding of a problem then transition to the parents and patients to understand the struggles and or successes related to each problem individually, and then finally a wrap-up looking at a global analysis of the specific disease or problem. I've already lined up a few great thought leaders in their respective fields. I will announce the first podcast here in the near future. My first attempt will be a reasonable interview with himself, Doc Smo. Now on to this week's topic. Genetically Modified Foods, Glyphosate, and Immunity. This is a a typically difficult topic to discuss because the data related to it is relatively controversial, the science is relatively muddy, and we don't really have a clear picture. I am of the conclusion at this point that there's no clear answer to this debate, and unfortunately, without a dog in the fight, the only thing I can do is sort of parse through the data and come up with a most reasonable approximation of what we should be doing moving forward. The individuals behind the science are often full of bias at the corporate level, and that makes this information digestion difficult. That being said, we're going to press on anyway. I've long worried in the past about the transition from all natural food to the modern pesticide-laden genetically modified variety. When you look at the research on safety, the variables involved in understanding a safe food type for humans are myriad and difficult to analyze and understand, period. The data that is the most useful on the negative side, unfortunately, only comes from translational animal models. The safety data showing that it's very safe is primarily funded by the industry, making major bias points difficult to get around. Thus, we remain in the dark as to the true safety and risk. I looked at a quote from an article by Spock et al. in 2005, and they say, the prevalence of allergic diseases has been increasing continuously, and accordingly, there is great desire to evaluate the allergic potential of components in our daily environment. Example, food. Although there is almost no scientific evidence that genetically modified organisms, otherwise known as GMOs, exhibit increased allergenicity compared with their corresponding wild type, significant concerns have been raised regarding this matter. 
In principle, it is possible that the allergenic potential of GMOs may be increased due to the introduction of potential foreign allergens to potentially upregulated expression of allergenic components caused by the modification of the wild-type organism or to different means of exposure. According to the current practice, the proteins to be introduced into a GMO are evaluated for the physiochemical properties, sequence homology with known allergens, and occasionally regarding their allergenicity activity, end quote. More questions raised here than answered based on that quote. But let's look a little bit further as we begin the process of looking at some of the questions as raised by another group. Here an author, Nawaz et al. in 2019 said in a five-part discussion, Mechanical and chemical processing prior to entering digestive system compromises DNA integrity. Number two, DNA fragments up to a few hundred base pairs can survive and reach in blood and tissues of human and animal consumers. Three, there's limited evidence that a dietary DNA can integrate into the genome of somatic cells or gut bacteria. Four, there's no evidence that dietary DNA integrated into somatic cells of consumers and gut bacteria has gene expression. Five, food microRNAs can survive digestion, enter the consumer's body, and may affect their gene expression in different organs, end quote. What this says is this. The immune system can and will be challenged by processed food protein fragments as these fragments reach tissues and blood. The immune system will have to discern whether these new proteins are friend or foe. This process is insanely complex, but it is highly regulated by genetics and early life events. If the system is primed for tolerance, then one should be okay. However, if the immune antigen presentation system is dysfunctional, then all bets are off. They also properly note in this five-part discussion that there is no evidence yet that these fragments, when incorporated into our DNA, can express proteins or trigger cellular function change. That is not to say that it will not be proven or is not happening now. It's just basically saying it is not proven. That is important. Scientific American, a journal, a periodical that I love and respect, says that debate should be over and that GMOs are safe and necessary to feed a growing planet. It comes from Garland et al. in 2020. For myself, as an observer of human disease, that is out of control in incidence and severity, I find it hard to swallow that the human-derived alterations of plant and animal proteins, mRNA, and other small molecules are without risk if the ingested individual has a skewed immune antigen presentation system. I find it even harder to swallow that spraying an entire field with glyphosate, otherwise known as Roundup, is good for us, the water, the soil ecosystem, based on its chemical structure, the time to degrade the chemical, and the volume being used. The GMO changes in some plants are specifically made to tolerate glyphosate spray, leading to large volumes of use in our food production and therefore left over in the soil and water that is around these areas of food production. From Dr. Pele, which is spelled P-E-I-L-L-E-X and colleagues, quote, in mammals, including humans, glyphosate mainly has cytotoxic and genotoxic effects causes inflammation and affects lymphocyte functions and the interactions between microorganisms and the immune system. Importantly, even as many outcomes are still being debated, evidence points to a need for more studies to better decipher the risks from glyphosate and better regulation of its global utilization. This was written in 2020. Many food scientists and industry profiteers will scoff 
at these statements as baseless and yet unproven, and they are correct. However, as medicine has shown time and again, the absence of a biomarker does not mean that a disease is absent. The absence of current proof is not the absence of possibility. Celiac disease, certain autoimmune diseases, and many genetic conditions are now true disease entities, as science has proven, where they were once considered in our mind. This is classic black swan stuff. Our immune systems are under constant assault by neoantigens, otherwise known as new protein structures of the synthetic type, and I am not yet convinced that we are not triggering disease by the chemical genetically modified pathway. I am not yet interested in taking it on blind faith that safety exists when we know that there are, are safe alternatives available, i.e. organic, old school, historical, natural foods. I will leave you with this thought. We are very clearly changing our environment faster than our genes can handle. We see this occurring at the epigenetic level in countless studies, whether it is related to chemicals, processed foods, stress, or other etiology. We are, as a society, getting sicker every year over year, while the antecedent variables change rapidly, making studies exceedingly difficult to, one, do, two, get great data out of. The federal and state governments are not looking to control known toxins like air pollution, pesticides, endocrine-disrupting chemicals, and water pollution to a safe level as we have seen with thousands of untested chemicals in our ecosystem and many pollution events going on all over the country every year. We are not looking to improve our child's school nourishment, which in my mind is one of the main primary drivers of the obesity chronic disease epidemic. This reality goes on and on to our detriment. I, for one, will try to avoid GMO and pesticide-laden food where I can, which is getting harder and harder by the year, to minimize future risk if it turns out to be there. If they are proven truly safe, then I've lost nothing but time and maybe a little bit extra cost. I wish that I had a scientific crystal ball with the truth about these topics, but alas, I do not. Postscript. I find it sad to see the comments on Peter Atia's website following an interview with Mark Hyman about these and other topics. Peter Atia is one of the better more thoughtful, thoroughly researched podcasters out there in the medical space. It always amazes me that people are so dogmatic and closed-minded to the possibility of someone against something or someone against which, against which they believe. I wrote back after reading the comments that to these naysayers, it is a sad day where a well-educated adults spend so much time bashing an elite podcaster just to try and shame him into not having diverse opinions that they disagree with on his show. I applaud Peter Atia for expanding the input to many diverse voices. Dr. Hyman is neither stupid nor a charlatan, as many are suggesting. You can disagree with the premise of his argument without the vitriol. That being said, the var variables around food and chemical exposure in general are so difficult to tease out to answer these questions irrefutably, yet that does not prove them false so much as unanswered. It is so obvious to me that the Tamane Indians and other developing cultures that we have studied over the past two decades are without most chronic diseases of aging and that modern societal changes regarding food, chemical exposure, stress are likely the main causes driving root dysfunctions of immune metabolic nature. It is useful to disagree and have quality discourse. However, please stop trying to cancel opinions and change discourse. Not useful in the long run. You can read uh, the information on Peter Tia's website if you want to specifically look at Dr. Hyman's podcast, which I thought was well done. Part two. I received a question from a vaccine-hesitant reader regarding trusted vaccine websites. My response. That is a loaded question. 
everyone in this debate has a relative agenda. I think that the American Academy of Pediatrics has some of the more reasonable basic information. To answer the questions that you have, there is no website that is unbiased. The science favors vaccination. The skeptical view is what science does until the evidence favors one side or the other. The evidence strongly favors vaccination. Thus, the counterargument remains theoretical only. Sorry that I cannot be of more help to you. However, I will leave you with this thought. For years, we use antibiotics everywhere until science proved the inherent risk in doing so. Now we have antibiotic stewardship programs everywhere in medicine. If vaccination was in the same boat, I think that we would know that by now. There are far too many industrialized countries using vaccines to hide that this risk is somewhere and we're not aware of it nor paying attention to it. Part three, or this is a reprise article on elimination from a few years ago. Elimination is one of many keys to good health. Elimination can occur in many ways, including sweating, defecation, expectorating, vomiting, urinating, and exhaling, and all of them are very valuable. This week, we're going to look specifically at defecation and constipation. As a pediatrician, I see more constipation than almost any other disorder save for infectious diseases. Over the years, the number of children suffering from abnormal bowel movements has skyrocketed. The classic presentation is a child between 2 and 16 years of age who complains of intermittent abdominal pain concentrated on the belly button that is sharp and lasts 10 to 30 minutes before totally resolving. Often they note relief upon having a bowel movement. Stools are usually produced daily or every other day. They are small hard nuggets or abnormally large for the child's size. This is key because of the fact that there's a great misconception around bowel movements that if you have one every day, you are not constipated. What does cause constipation? In my practice, the most common problem I see is a high dairy and low fiber refined carbohydrate intake that leads to a holding behavior in children secondary to the pain associated with passing a large painful stool or a hard small stool. Other causes include hypothyroidism, sedentary behavior, medicines, low magnesium levels, dehydration, and stress slash travel, but they are lower down on the totem pole compared to dietary influences. When we do not effectively eliminate our bowels, we hold toxins in our system longer than necessary, and this can cause cellular and microbiome damage. Elimination is working to prevent damage until it does not. Think about how smart the body's defenses are. When we have an infection in our intestines, our body changes the intestine's ability to absorb water, thus flushing out the bacteria or viral particles and healing after they are gone. We see the same event happening with dairy intolerance or allergy. This classic example in the newborn with milk protein casein intolerance, where we see this green loose stools associated with a colicky behavior, spitting up and dry skin. If left untreated, the intestines become significantly inflamed, you leads to breakdown in the skin of the interior lining of the intestine, leading to bloody stools. Removing the cow's milk from the maternal diet if breastfeeding or changing the formula to a non-cow-milked or hydrolyzed type will reduce this problem or eliminate it completely rapidly. Simple cause and effect, and resolution does come to pass. The body naturally clears these toxins when the volumes are large, as in two examples above, unless the infection is seriously malignant, think cholera, or the human continues to consume the offending protein. Both of these situations need an intervention to resolve the disease. Back to the constipation. In many milk-sensitive older kids with moderate disease, they present paradoxically as just constipated. Dairy has been found to be at the root of more than 50% of these childhood constipation situations. 
This is hard for parents to understand since it previously was a diarrheal issue as an infant. This is true. Chronic constipation predisposes a human being to many issues, including fatigue, bloating, an abnormal microbiome, rectal prolapse, and potentially increased colon cancers. Our goal is to have one to three soft form bowel movements every day. For children that are less than 10 years of age, a critical feature of this dysfunction is losing the ability to sense a bowel movement in the rectal vault. They lose the ability to hear the signal that the brain is sending out. It is akin to walking to a room with a buzzing light. And you hear it in the beginning, it's annoying, but then after a few minutes or so, you don't notice that sound anymore. You've learned to tune it out. Children do the same thing to the signal when the rectal vault is filled with stool. They eventually tune it out until that piece of stool is actually pushing out on its own. Here comes the what to do part. First thing I would say most importantly, avoid large volumes of dairy products or cut dairy out completely. This includes milk, cheese, ice cream, yogurt, butter. If it is a true allergy, consult an allergist. Number two, dramatically reduce low fiber foods, which include most bread, cereals, and flour-based foods in general. Number three, increase fiber-based foods, especially fruits, vegetables, and legumes, beans. Four, schedule bowel movement time after meals, taking advantage of the gastrocolic reflex. Five, drink lots of water. Six, move a lot. Walk, run, play to increase bowel function and bowel peristalsis. Seven, consider a high quality probiotic supplement. Eight, increase foods that contain magnesium, specifically dark leafy greens, nuts, and beans. Consider magnesium supplements with the help of your provider. Nine, practice relaxation and, medit and meditation. 10, avoid narcotics, SSRI medicines, and constipating medicines as well. If you continue to suffer hard stools, seek medical care and look for potential other causes. Finishing up this newsletter, there is a recipe for shrimp fried rice from my good friend, Mark Allison. Go to the website and take a look. It is something that I highly encourage you to try. His dishes are fantastic. There you have it. That's the bit and story of Spa Newsletter, volume 11, issue number 22. I hope you enjoyed it. Look forward to uh, talking to you next week. Take care. Be well.